prove it. He did. I can prove it. Every boy, every girl. Spice up. It's, it's another. Are we ready? Yeah. Okay. Glad you're happy. Shake it to the left if you're having a good time. Shake it to the left. Well, I'll put this down too so I don't ruin your recording. Okay. Uh, hello, lovely people. Have you finished singing? I was finished. Yeah, okay, you can sing on 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 recording if you want to. I'm oh. sure everyone would love to hear your singing voice. No, I'm fine, really. <laughs> this briefing is from file A five six seven W. Classified top secret subject is. Hey kids, comics. Comic books. An art form only alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. Digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude. We can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. lovely people and welcome back to the final week of spider-man month now i know what you're thinking and you're right why did spider-man month a last five weeks and b not actually last over the period of a, of a month well i'm it's, glad it's you asked one it was a five-week month but we inserted the feedback was it yeah we inserted the feedback show into it, in front of it, which kind of bollocksed up my, my schedule. Right. But given that my schedule's been bollocksed up since Secret Wars... Forever. It's, it's not really mattered that much, has it? Not really. No, not really. Um, I did struggle with Naughty's issues of Spider-Man to pick a favourite. Whilst there were a few issues of Peter David's friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man that I considered... For the most part, the past decade has been the textbook definition of hit and miss. The reboot in the early noughties by Byrne and Mackey was pretty risible, as was Chapter 1. Joe Straczynski's run had its moments, but was saddled with too much residual baggage for me to truly consider any of the stories in isolation. Brand New Day had some good points, but still left a sour taste in the mouths of many readers following the One More Day. And Dan Slott's run, starting with Big Time, has also been peaks and troughs. Why well, was a trough? Um, there's been a few troughs. I can't remember any off the top of my head, but I can't remember any particular peaks either. Because reading it, I've considered it as a mostly straight line. There is well that as well. It's it, if you're going with a mostly straight line, then there's no favourites, is there? I suppose. It's so, all right to to kind of the yeah, phrase. Am I the only one who likes brand new day? No, one more day and. I think you're the only person who likes one time. more day. You're definitely the only one who likes one moment in time. Ah. Uh, yes. Right, okay. So so that's so you see. So what I decided to do <laughs> instead, and Michael's indulging me in his own inimitable fashion because he knows that just over the horizon is stuff that he wants to yeah. do. Uh, I decided to pick my top ten all-time favourite Spider-Man stories to end this celebration of all things wall crawler. You managed to pick Ted. I'm, I could have gone on forever. Uh, I was going to say it was an effort. Uh, what? First, we have emails that we're going to cover. What was that sigh? Our first one. It wasn't an effort at all. I could read Spider-Man all year. No, I mean, was it an effort to get Ted? Yes. Right. It was. Okay. Very much so. There we go, then. Andrew Morton has emailed in. Hello, Andrew. He's got a good name. 
Martin. Yes. <laughs> Martin. That's such a great name. I meant Andrew, but... Oh, right. Well, you would. Hello, Messrs. Leyland and Leyland. That would be me and thee. Who's thee? Thee would be thee, <laughs> and me would be me. <laughs> I have recently listened to your latest feedback episode where you raised the topic of things you would like to cover and mooted a change of format in which to do so. Yes, we did, didn't we? We did. We were kind of just spitballing, though, weren't we? Really? I suppose. Yeah. Personally, I like the format of the show as it is, and feel that if you decide to cover full stories, such as Preacher, it may be better to give a summary of the entire story, maybe split by trade paperback volume, rather than an issue-by-issue synopsis. Which is a good idea. Cover each arc as, like, one long, or not-so-long synopsis in my case, because I get bored of doing synopsises. Synopsi. You wouldn't get as much character development, though. Yeah, but you can talk about that later. Yeah. Well, we were kind of just spitballing with the format change because there were so many anyway, things can... that we wanted to do that are long, yeah. wasn't there? With, with Preachy, you can sum it up in a sentence, though, really. Yeah, and then go into detail about the themes of that particular story. The guy arc. goes across America to find God. He finds God. The end. 66 <laughs> issues condensed, just like that. Well done. Otherwise, continues Andrew, sticking to covering a character or story arc over a week or two is my preferred option, giving me the chance to hear about things I haven't heard before, and making it more likely you'll cover stuff you can rip the piss out of, e.g. Secret Wars, Johnny's Secret Identity, etc., which is also highly entertaining. I noticed he mentioned one of your other shows. He did, he, yeah, he sneaked a sneaky plug there in for Fantastic Cast. I liked how he did that. I mm-hmm. thought it was very subtle. And I would have drawn attention to it myself, but you sneaked in there first. Okay. All that said, it is not the format of the show that keeps me coming back each week, so you will not lose this listener if you do not if you do mix things up a bit. Thanks, Andrew Martin. You will, oh. however, lose this listener if you leave Michael. Why would I leave you? Maybe you'd decide. I think it's much it. more likely you will leave me. You will go off into the wide blue yonder, and the show will. The show has a definite end point. Does it? Yeah, I think. Okay. When you actually go off and do what you're doing. Yeah, but, you know, the really sad thing is, after a few weeks, I'm going to be really bored on Thursday. So <laughs> but, Dad, do you covering something? We, you, we could, you'll be off living your own life. We can, we can do it on Skype. Yeah, yeah, I suppose we could still carry on doing it on Skype. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't worry too much, Andrew. We were just spitballing in that show. I did consider cutting all of that out, but I decided just to leave it in, because... It was effort to cut it out. It was effort to cut it out, yeah. I don't think we'll be changing the format of the show too much. If you consider that the original format of the show was Michael picks an issue, I pick an issue, and we talk about it. And how many times have have we actually done that? Yeah, We've not done that many times at all, have we? From the very first episode, we didn't do that format. We did for the second and for a while. We did for a while, and then we kind of decided, let's cover Astoria. It was too hard to just choose an issue. Was it? Well... It was easier when we had a theme and we were choosing an issue following that theme, but when it was just choose a random issue you want to cover, yeah. it was hard because like, oh, I'll cover this. No, and then I'll you cover change that. your mind, don't you? Yeah. See, the thing with that is, what I found was a lot of times I would pick an issue that I adored and then I would read it, and because I adored it, I was like, well, I don't actually have a lot to say about this other than yeah. it was dead good. And that doesn't make for a very interesting show. The best shows are when we both pick something that the other one's like. lukewarm on. Uh, and that causes the friction. Um, we're not. I don't think we're going to be cheating. As much as we would love to cover all of Preacher and all of Hitman, I don't think it's going to happen. Upcoming ideas. Uh, I may. I'll tell. We'll tell the audience our upcoming ideas because they may never happen. Okay. Because we still haven't done our Wolverine show, 
or our Alpha uh, Flight show, or our George Perez Wonder Woman show, all of which were on the list and we just haven't got around to yet. But coming up, or the plan of coming up soon, is we do want to do New Frontier, both mm-hmm. the film and the comics, because yep. that was a suggestion of Matthew Balzano. Hello, Matthew. And we thought that's a really good idea. We yep. like that idea. And then we've got Knight's End. End. Or maybe we'll do Knight's End first. Oh, yeah. We've not decided on the order of this. And then it's Flashpoint... Because yeah. I've never read Flashpoint, so I'm quite interested in covering that. Michael has. And then... It was dead good. Bearing in mind that this isn't the order that it'll probably happen in, but then Michael has picked four of the new 52 books that he's enjoying the most for me to read. And you as well. I've just kind of gone with you on that. Two of the ones... Two of the ones I've read. Two others. And two others I've not read, but you insist that they're very good. They are very good. Okay, so I'm willing to give them the chance. So I don't think there's going to be... We do want to do Gotham... Zombie Nights at the Gotham Aquarium. Mm -hmm. That's definitely on the list. You know what we should do for one show? What? A game. A what? A game. What, just us playing on the PlayStation? Yeah. That wouldn't be very interesting for the audience, would it? Video. We can wear paper bags. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but people have been on Facebook now. They know what we look like. On our Facebook page, there are pictures of us now. Oh, great. Unfortunately. There goes my secret identity. There goes our anonymity. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, thank you, Andrew. So I I wouldn't be too concerned. I don't think we're going to be changing the format of the show anytime soon. Oh, here we go. And yes, here we go. It's this week's letter from... Luke Jackanus. Hi, Luke. You know, I'll be upset the week Luke doesn't send us an email. Yeah. I I have to say I'm very disappointed in Michael Bailey as well. Why? He's not emailed us in a long time. He's working for a living. Yeah, I suppose. Gets in the way, doesn't it? It's a decent excuse. It's a very decent excuse, yeah. How come you have enough time for all these podcasts you do? I only do one. Two. I do two, but the the fantastic cast doesn't take up as much time as this one. Three. I don't do three. Occasionally done. I will crop up on other shows. On people well, who are very generous well. enough to invite me. You've done views from the long I've box. I've done views from the long box with Michael Bailey covering Spider-Man, which was enormous fun, and we want to do that again. Anything else? I've done a couple of two true freaks with Scott and Chris, which is always fun. So would it not be three true freaks? No, which this is, is even more of a tongue twister. Well, you've been on two true freaks as well. I've not. I was just a completely different show. It was not. It was. It was a two true freaks spin-off show. There you go. It's a spin-off. So, the, so you've been on two true freaks. A spin-off. Oh, no, right, so Star Trek Deep Space Nine isn't Star Trek, is it not? Actually, spin-off. some people would say that it isn't. <laughs> anyway, we've, we've digressed. Uh, Luke's email this week, Andrew and Michael, or Michael and Andy. He's done that one before. He has. Oh, he has. Luke. He did Andrew. All right, he's done Andy. Oh, I read it uh, wrong. Yeah. That's fair enough, yeah. Just finishing listening to your second episode of Spider-Man Month. Once more, two issues I had not read, and two issues which sound quite entertaining. I'm sure we did three. I don't think he's listened to all the show. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe the other one wasn't entertaining and he had read it. Yeah, maybe the other one wasn't sufficiently entertaining. Let me just go back at my notes here. Yes, we did Marvel Team at 121, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man 58, and Spider-Man 75! How could he forget Spider-Man 75? Oh, no, maybe that was the one that was entertaining. It was the end of the Clone Saga! No, that would be the entertaining one. And and the one with the kid would have been the entertaining one. And he forgot about the one with Frogger. 
<laughs> no, he mentions that. Marble team up. Ah, he right. continues in his email is a great book to find in the dollar bins. You can't find him in the dollar bins over here. They're still expensive Marvel team ups over here. We don't have dollar bins. But that that's true. <laughs> that that would also be why I can't find them in the dollar bins. <laughs> oh I'm full stupid. Uh, you typically got a full story in each issue and you never knew what to expect to see sharing the cover space with the wall crawler in any given issue. Although I think Marvel 2 in 1 was even better in this respect because, let's face it, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing can get himself into some pretty ridiculous situations. My favourite issue of Marvel Team-Up is number 72, Crack of the Whip, where Webhead teams up with my favourite hero, Iron Man, to battle Whiplash and the Magia. Yes, I've got that one. Gene DeWolf and the Wraith get involved as well and it's just a fun adventure. Didn't the Wraith turn out to be Gene DeWolf's brother? At some was point it? in the future, yeah, I think so. Uh, recently, it was a police officer, wasn't it? Yes, it was, it was, then there was some connection to Gene DeWolf, though, wasn't there? Yeah. Anyway, Spidey teamed up with Shellhead several times during the run of Marvel Team Up, and I've been trying to track them all down for my Iron Man collection. Issue 65, the American debut of Captain Britain, was pretty cool as well, although I have it in the Marvel Tales reprint rather than the original Marvel Team Up. But Team Up and 2 in 1 are typical show buys whenever I see them in the dollar bin. The thing I liked about Team Up. And two in one when I was a kid, although I bought Marvel Team at more than Marvel Two in One, was that it was my window onto the larger Marvel universe. It was the same reason that I bought Brave and the Bold. Okay. Because every month you got Spider Man in Marvel and Team Up and Batman in Brave and the Bold. In. Yeah, and then you got somebody else that you may never have heard of. Yeah. And then you go, Oh, this guy's quite interesting, maybe I'll investigate him. And then other times you go, Paladin? Ambush Bug. <laughs> Ambush Bug. I quite like Ambush Bug. Regarding Spectacular Spider-Man 58, if it came out when you say it did, then it was released on my one-year birthday. He's doing that just to rub it in, isn't he? (laughs) I never read an issue of Spectacular until Maximum Carnage, so the idea of it being the gritty title is still a novel idea to me. Oh, sorry to interrupt Luke's email. We've we've bandied around the idea of doing Sins Past as well, haven't we? But I'm a bit... I'm a bit what's it about that because I've always said we will never do something deliberately negative and it's one of the few rules that I set myself out on this show that we haven't broken we haven't done anything that we deliberately don't like we may have done something that you don't like but I do and Vicky Verke and we may have done something that you were lukewarm on and I was lukewarm on with a view that maybe when we covered it together we'd like it more we've never done something we deliberately don't like because by and large we're quite optimistic aren't we yeah. This is a celebration of comics. It's not we come here to praise them, not to bury them. Well Occasionally we bury them. <laughs> but we bury them we bury them with goodwill. Goodwill. Yes. We bury them with sand. So my my thinking with Sins Past is I don't think I could approach that from a positive viewpoint. Well Maybe you could. Yeah, that's what I was just gonna say. So maybe you could be the, the omega to my alpha though. Anyway, we, again, we've, we've spitballed in the middle of somebody's email. Sorry, Luke. Um, I never really... I've said all of that. Maybe I'll pick up an Essentials. Anyway, I don't have much to say about The Ringer, but I am a fan of The Beetle. I like The Beetle. I was first exposed to the character on an episode of Spider-Man and his amazing friends, which showed the origin of the Spider-Friends. He had the coolest distorted metallic voice ever, and his green and purple armor always looked fantastic. I liked The Beetle. I liked him in the early Lee Dick issues where he fought Spider-Man and the Torch. I was okay. always quite a fan of the Beatles. Ah, you will now found out the true identity of the Beatles. Ringo Starr! <laughs> I was the genius behind all the songs, really. I don't know why I'm from Manchester when I was a little Look, problem. guys, I wrote a song. Uh, we'll put it right on the fridge so everyone can see it. <laughs> oh, 
Amusingly, as he was an Iron Man baddie, Tony Stark guest stars in the episode and gives the Spider Friends their crime-fighting computer gear. Beetle would reappear for an extended cameo in the Iron Man cartoon series where he talked with a Liverpoolian accent before being zapped. Eli, why do you think the Beetle talks with an accent like this, eh? Which makes no sense as he's an American, but it was amusing nonetheless. Definitely enjoying your coverage of the friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man and looking forward to further instalments. Thanks, dudes. Luke, you're very welcome, Luke. I'm glad you're enjoying them, even though you've never read them. Ah, uh, he wasn't born to read them. Oh, uh, shut up. You ute. Is that all? Yes, that's it for emails. Come on, people, email us. So we can do another feedback show, because we're getting lazy. And Dad will start emailing himself. And I'll start emailing yeah, I'll start doing what Stanley did. Good. Start making up our own feedback. <laughs> yeah, dear Andrew and Michael, God, you two suck. Uh, dear Andrew, you are like dead good. When I grow up, I want to be like you. Ooh, ooh. I want to be like you. I-, I thought your impression was well good. <laughs> My impressions are well and, good. And your singing voices is so beautiful. You made me cry when you sang that. <laughs> <laughs> when you sang Thunderball. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it were eat good. <laughs> that moved me. <laughs> I suspect this yeah, is how tonight's going to go. The voice of an angel. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear me. Back on topic, picking my all-time favourites was a lot harder than I'd anticipated it being. Trying to narrow down my favourite all-time stories was a very hard decision. And lots of great stories didn't make the cut after I made one big decision. Yeah. Which is what you were asking about earlier on. I was going to eliminate all the ancillary titles, including annuals. Okay. I don't know why it was important to me that the top ten should all be amazing Spider-Man issues, but it was. Okay. It's a silly rule, but it's mine. I'm probably going to break it. That's all point. of them silly. All of them are silly, yes. Uh, th- this did make the decision a lot easier, but it did include losing some all-time favourites. In addition to a number of stories we've already covered over the past four weeks, if I had been including annuals... Then Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1, The Sinister Six, by Stanley and Steve Ditko. Annual Number 5, The Parents of Peter Parker, by Stanley and Larry Lieber, both of which I don't think I need to say anything about because they're recognised classics. Annual Number 15, Spider-Man Threat or Menace, by Denny O'Neill and Frank Miller, a wonderful Punisher Spider-Man team-up against Doc Ock with great Frank Miller art. Annual 18, The Scorpion Takes a Bride, which we did cover last week or the week before. We have covered that yeah. one, haven't we? Uh, by Lee DeFalco and Friends, which was really funny, I thought. And Annual Number 29, which was actually called Annual 1996, because it was in that period where Marvel weren't numbering their annuals. Fair enough. Um, Heart and Soul by Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, and John Romita. A touching little flashback to the Lee Kane Romita era would all have been in the running as potential top tens. From the ancillary books, Marvel Team Up 65 and 66, which Luke just mentioned in his email. You see, once again, you think I throw all this together. But once again, Lady Luck has popped her head up to make it seem like it's all planned. But in fact, no, it's not really. It's just dumb luck. Introducing Captain Britain and Murder World by Chris Clermont and John Byrne, with Spider-Man and Captain Britain taking on Arcade. And issue 79, Sword of the She-Devil by Chris Clermont, John Byrne and Terry Austin, where Murray Jane is taken over by the spirit of Red Sonja, would definitely have been in with a chance. That sounds so cool. It is, it's a brilliant issue. Spider-Marvel team up 79. 
Um, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man would have been represented with issue 46, Deadly as the Cobra, by Roger Stern and Mike Zeck. Issue 59 and issue 60, I Want Spider-Man and Beatlemania, again by Roger Stern, but with art by Jim Shooter, Ed Hannigan and Jim Mooney, in which Stern deserves some kind of award for making the Beatle and the Gibbon credible foes. Bill Mantlow's run through some much overlooked classics, my favourites being issue 64, with art by Ed Hannigan, and featuring the debut of the eponymous Cloak and Dagger, the multi-part Op Owl Gang War, which ran from issue 72 through 79, with art by Jim Mooney and Al Milgram, and the wonderfully offbeat issue 80, I Cover the Waterfront, with art by Ron Friends, from which J. Jonah Jameson takes centre stage and Spider-Man is merely an off-camera presence. The Death of Gene DeWolf by Peter David and Rich Buckler from issues 107 through 110 and 112 Christmas Story You Never Make a Sound would also have been in with a good crack. You're not going to make an ass joke there? No. No, you're going to, re- you're going to resist that? I'm, I'm trying. I'm very mature. I know. Yeah, very good. What if... Number 24, What If Gwen Stacy Had Lived, by Tony Isabella, Gil Kane and Frank Gaia What If Number 46, What If Uncle Ben Had Lived... You know in a theme. You know it's in a theme, though. By Peter B. Gillis, Ron Friends and Sam De La Rosa. And a good number of Untold Tales of Spider-Man issues would have also got a nod. I think. And what if Aunt May hadn't been an actress? <laughs> However, they're not included, so they're not in the top ten. Right, then. It seems fair enough, doesn't it? What follows is purely random, apart from the all-time favourites at the end, and I reserve the right to change some of them based on my capricious whims at any point. Amazing Spider-Man 1 through 150 are like a fine wine, in my opinion, simply getting better with age. Whilst it is possible to point out the flaws and some of the more dated aspects of these stories, this is to miss out on the just sheer unbridled fun of many of these comics. You've never read Amazing Spider-Man 1 through 150, have you? I've read the odd issue. I have gone wrong as a parent. Even not. Okay. I still read. That's a good point. (laughs) Absolutely. Without further ado, here are the all-time favourites. A note. I said favourites, not best. Mm, I didn't know that. Two completely different beasts. Oh, I know. Some of these stories on here would never crack the top ten best yeah. Spider-Man stories, would they? I noticed you were favourites <laughs> and not best. <laughs> First up, from Amazing Spider-Man number eight, and let me just pull that up on my iPad. There it is. What's it called? Cover dated January 1964. It featured two stories. The first, and best, in my opinion, The Terrible Threat of the Living Brain was by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, and a wonderfully sublime mix of silly and stupendous from the magnificent cover which proudly proclaims itself to be a special tribute to teenagers issue and has a teaser image of spider-man fighting a robot and peter parker boxing with flash thompson as if that wasn't enough as the added traction of spider-man tackling the torch yep excellent my first memory of reading this is in marvel tales issue 145 and being utterly enthralled by it the plot such as it is, is almost incidental to this book. But for those that don't recall, Midtown High School is where Mr. Pettit of the ICM Corporation has chosen to demonstrate his new computerised robotic system, the Living Brain. So powerful is this device, it can even think. And yet not actually. And yet not actually think. Of course, all the kids of Midtown High want to know is, can it tell them who Spider-Man is? Simultaneously, Flash has been a humongous tool and breaks Peter's glasses, and the two delivery men who brought the brain into school with Petty decide to steal it. Whilst the plot of the issue doesn't really stand up to too much scrutiny. Oh, well. 
There's a wealth of truly excellent material here. Firstly, there's a wonderfully choreographed fight scenes between the brain and Spider-Man, where not only does our wall-crawling wonder show off his brains and bravery, but I found hysterically funny as well. Witness Spidey being trampled under a door by two hoodlums. Witness the living brain turning into a spinning top to remove our hapless hero. Doff your cap to our teenage superstar as he panics ever so slightly, but still wins the day. Brilliant. And that's just the superhero action. In terms of overall continuity, this is the issue that Peter stops wearing glasses, and he gets to punch Flash Thompson in the face. There's some excellent additions to the overall character development of Peter and his friends. Here, as Peter's increased confidence starts giving him the courage to stand up to Flash, and his classmates, particularly Liz Allen, start noticing that Peter isn't the slightest bit scared of Flash. Of course, if I was Peter, I'd just keep pointing out that Flash's real name's Eugene. You say stand-up. What? You say stand up to Flash. Yes. Okay. Why? What do you say? It's not standing up, though. Why is he not standing up? Because Flash did nothing to him in this issue. Um, on page two, panel two, right. he shoves Peter out the way by pushing his head, thus smashing his specs. How is that Flash not doing anything okay. to him in this issue? He's, he's moving about the way so you can see it, okay? He's no. not no, moving about, right, he right, stood right, behind right, him! Right, right. Right. You stand perfectly still. Okay. Okay. Now, did your glasses come off when I just pushed your head? No, but if you do that again, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> so there you go. There's Peter's reaction to a T. Oh, dear me. Uh, of course, the fight doesn't quite go according to the old Parker look by the time they actually get in the ring, but overall this was a fun romp. It was ignored in Spider-Man Chapter 1. But as that was a largely humorless retelling of Spider-Man's early days, we can safely ignore it and move on to the second story of this issue after Peter's words... Peter's words? Yeah. After Michael's words of wisdom. It was silly. It's... A giant robot gets entrusted to a high school science class. What's wrong with that? I totally buy into that premise. <laughs> and, and, and the two <laughs> goons who help bring in the robot just stay and watch the show yeah. instead of going doing more work. <laughs> Maybe they have to monitor it because it's an expensive piece of equipment. Okay. <laughs> and there was the whole thing with the fight being Peter's fault anyway. Why is it Peter's fault? Elaborate. Well, because I... Yeah, he, he pushed him out of the way and knocked his glasses, but Peter did start the fight between the two. No, he doesn't! Yes, he does. Where does he start the fight? He, he'll, he'll go. He's still... No, he doesn't. You've had seven solid issues here of Flash being a tool and picking on Peter. And Peter's finally had enough and he's going to punch the jerk's light out, lights out. I don't see how you can be on Flash Thompson's side here. Well, I'm not on anyone's side because um, the, every time I've punched someone, I seem to get told off and they're fine. Yeah, there is that. Every time you've punched somebody, punch you're the me, one who's got in trouble. If they've punched me, that's completely fine. But if I punch them back, that's all. Oh, that's it, though. The second story in the issue, Spider-Man Tackles the Torch, a Spider-Man Surprise Extra, was written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby, and inked by Steve Ditko. It's not as much fun as the lead entails, simply because Spider-Man picks a fight with the Torch for no particular reason. It kind of underscores what you were just talking about. Uh, and he's seen to be stalking his girlfriend, Doris Evans, the Torch's current girlfriend, but it has its moments. And it did lead into a great untold Tales of Spider-Man story where Spider-Man asked the Invisible Girl out on a date. <laughs> And she said no, because I'm kind of engaged to this guy. No, she went out with him. All right, fair enough. Bet Reed and Namor were uh, 
teaming up to take him down in that one. <laughs> See, he's very much so. Peter's a real big douche in this. He's not a real big douche he, in this he's, at he's, all. He's not even stepping up to a bully's crashing somebody else's crashing party. Someone's party and fighting them and, and stalking their girlfriend a fight with the rest of the Fantastic Four yeah it's quite weird to see Peter is the immature one between him and Johnny for once unless you read recent comics when I say immature I mean it not be Johnny's fault fair enough second on my countdown Amazing Spider-Man 48 cover dated May 1967 is another firm favourite. This was reprinted along with the subsequent issue 49 in the UK Spider-Man annual from 1983 and has remained one of my faves ever since. It has an excellent genre meter cover, intriguingly keeping the vulture's face out of sight and thus not spoiling the story. Uh, yeah, but it's not as prominent as Ron Friends would draw asses, is it? No. Most of Ramita's Spider-Man covers were sublime, and this is no exception. Uh, the Wings of the Vulture by Smiling Stanley, Jazzy Johnny Romita, centred around the original Vulture, Adrian Toomes, referred to only as Vulture throughout the entire story, close to death, bequeathing his Vulture apparatus to Blackie Drago, who begins a reign of terror over New York that only Spider-Man can stop. Except he has a cold and is feeling a bit caca. Again, the plot's quite simple and again doesn't bear too much examination. Is it really that easy to escape from jail? And how could Drago dig up the Vulture's equipment so quickly given that it's freezing? Have you ever tried to dig frozen ground with no spade? No. It's not easy. However, again, it's the overall experience that makes this one of my favourites. Firstly, it's snowing, which gives the story an element of danger. Spider-Man climbs things and things are slippery when it snows. Additionally, our hero has a truly epic head cold, which every single one of us can relate to. But in addition to the background texture, there's Lee's simply awesome, though probably wholly inaccurate, swinging 60s dialogue. The quintessential Spider-Man supporting cast of Harry Osborn, Gwen Stacy and Murray Jane Watson, J. Jonah Jameson railing on Spidey and some utterly gorgeous Ramita art. His magnificent vertiginous renditions of New York give the story a real sense of place, and the final fight scene as a groggy Spider-Man takes on a new and improved Vulture gives rise to one of the best cliffhanger endings in comics, which would be referenced again in Roger Stern and Ramita Jr.'s quintessential Vulture story in Amazing Spider-Man 240. Whilst this issue is never referenced in any top 10 Spider-Man stories, my top 10 would be incomplete without it. So what did you think of this one, Michael? Well, while I'm still confused about how Drago was smart enough to quickly make a helmet that perfectly fit his head, was the same design as the costume, and fit a radio receiver in the... <laughs> I thought this was quite enjoyable. Oh. I, I like seeing Spidey get beaten. Well, that's because you're a scum. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's, it's part and parcel of the strip, Spider-Man being beaten. Cool. That is a valid point that Blackie Drago instantly becomes a scientist. Yeah, and there is the thing where Peter could have easily won if he'd have just had some chicken soup. Yes. <laughs> uh, I love this issue. I really do. I make no apologies for it. It's one of my favourites. Coming in at number three, Amazing Spider-Man 88. Oh, would it be seven? Uh, yes, probably would be seven. Seven or three, depending on your point of view. From a certain point My number view. one favourite is at the end, just in case you're as confused as I am. Which is number ten. Which is number ten, yeah. Amazing um, Spider on 88, cover dated September 1970, is another I have fond memories of. It's still the oldest US Spider-Man comic I have in my collection, and was probably one of the earliest I ever saw. The cover is Dr. Octopus's arms, sans Doc Ock, giving our hero a jolly good whoopit whilst a crowd of onlookers run away terrified. It's... Simply wonderful. But it's John Romita, so that's mm. understood. 
Entitled The Arms of Dr. Octopus, it's scripted by Stan Lee with art by John Romita and Jim Mooney. In this issue, Dr. Octopus has been successfully removed from his arms, but over the years has learned to control them telepathically. Summoning them from prison, Spider-Man intervenes in an attempt to stop them, but they get away when Spidey has to prevent a building from falling on some passers-by. After some soap opera stuff between Peter and Gwen, the arms reach Doc Ock, and together they steal aboard a 747 out of Chicago's O'Hare Airport that J. Jonah Jameson, Colonel John Jameson, and an important Japanese political figure, General Sue, happen to be on. He's a boy named Sue. (laughs) Doc Ock turns this into a ransom demand. Ten million dollars, or he'll kill the general. Now, when I was a young'un, this is why Marvel Comics were different to the others I may have read. Whilst it's true, there's a definite formula to Spider-Man at this point. The main crew would appear to battle Spider-Man. They would escape, so we could have some soap opera stuff in the middle. And then the final confrontation would be at the end. Here, we have some political subtext reflecting the unrest of the day. Stan is careful to have Peter taken either side. The effect being Spider-Man is having on Peter's life, and some more romance with Gwen. Whilst there are a few issues with the story, Chicago, where Ock is being held, is about 800 miles away from New York, yet he can still mentally control his arms, it's still a primo slice of 60s Spider-Man, and the beginning of the maturing of the book into the darker 70s, with the death of two major characters coming over the next two years. What did you think of this one, Michael? Oh, this is a reprint! Was it? Yeah, it comes from the death of Captain Darcy Trade Paperback. Is is that why I preferred the art? It was more crisper. Uh, yes, this doesn't seem to be a scan of the original issue. This is a scan yeah. of the reprint. Fair enough, because I like the art in this. No, John um, Romita was brilliant. Um, but this would have been solved. The whole thing would have been solved. You wouldn't have had the controversial rally and the general and all that if Peter had simply gone over to Chicago. I know it's a fair distance away, but it's hey, 800 miles away. The arms managed to find their way, though. Is, yes, under mental control, Dr. Octopus. How do you propose that Peter Parker gets to Chicago? Aeroplane. With what money? He doesn't. He, ju- he jumps on the arms and holds the wings. And you are, you know, cold in his up there. He's not Superman. Well, hey, he survived the last issue in the cold, didn't he? Yeah, in regulation snow, not flying at fifteen thousand feet. Well, well, he'll sneak into the. <laughs> he'll, he'll sneak into the storage compartment. Storage compartments. Storage compartments. There. The storage compartments of wheat, Captain. He'll put them in there whilst they're loading up. With the quadrotriticale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, I'll, I'll go that he should have travelled 800 miles to confront Dr. Octopus. Rather or alternatively, why does he not just phone somebody up at the prison and say Dr. Octopus is mentally controlling his arms? Go and knock him out. Yeah, okay. That would have been better than... Hey, <laughs> than hanging onto an aeroplane no, no, no. at 15,000 feet. I, I still think that is a good idea, but... Yeah, you would. It's better than, hey, let's have these arms smash about uncontrollably and <laughs> let them kill people. But we won't do anything about that because Chicago's just that little bit too far away from it. Uh, next on my list of favourites, Amazing Spider-Man 92, cover dated January 1972, boasts another magnificent... John Romita cover. Look at that. Tell me that's not fantastic. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, A kidnapped Gwen Stacy in his arms. Spider-Man is pursued by the Iceman. I love that cover. Uh, It dawns on me that Iceman's quite stupid in that issue because not only by cutting Spider-Man's web... He's just made Gwen Stacy fall to her death, yes. (laughs) 
hadn't anticipated. I hadn't really noticed that, yeah. Yes, Iceman's a bit of a douche on the cover, isn't it? It dawns on me that as big as a Dictico fan as I am, it's Ramita's covers that cemented the look of the character and what I think of when I think of Spider-Man. Again, the angle of the art gives us a clear look at the New York landscape below and gives us a true feeling of height and movement, especially as both Spider-Man and Gwen are about to fall to the death, as Michael has just pointed out. Iceman has just cut Spider-Man's web. Way to go, Iceman. Iceman could have killed Gwen Stacy before Spidey did. Yes, yes. The whole nearly 30-odd issues before it actually happened as well. The story within, when Iceman Attacks, was written by Stan Lee with art by Gil Kane and John Romita and follows up the death of George Stacy, a death Spider-Man is implicated in, and is hip-deep in the elect bullet story arc. Arriving home to find Sam Bullitt, a snivelling politician who is using George Stacy's death to further his own political ideals, and Gwen Stacy both waiting for Peter Parker, Spider-Man grabs Gwen to ensure they don't suspect he is Peter, only to be attacked by Iceman, who understandably thinks Spider-Man has kidnapped poor Gwen. Spidey escapes only to see Bullitt taking a ride with Robbie after the bugle pulls its support of the politician after his shady business dealings and bigoted attitude towards minorities is uncovered. Fearing for Robbie's life, Spidey tails them, and he and Iceman prevent them killing Robbie and expose Bullet for the scumbag he is. Another classic. Our favourite. Our favourite, yeah. The maturity in storytelling I mentioned last issue is in full swing here, with not only continued subplots and character continuity, but fully-fledged story arcs and deeper themes. Lee starts dipping his toes further into the political arena with this issue, following a pattern that he started in the mid to late 60s with story tackling real issues and possibly controversial themes. Whilst Bullet is brought down a little bit too easily, Lee deserves full credit for raising the issue of Bullet's bigotry and racism in a rather subtle and understated manner, as well as deepening Jameson's character and having him realise he made a mistake and then fully backing his city editor. Whilst we get some fantastic up-the-nostril shots typical of artist Gil Kane, his artwork is somewhat subsumed under Ramita's inks, but when the overall package is this good, I can live with it. Bendis with an exclamation mark, would use this tale as the basis for one of his ultimate Spider-Man story arcs, but as with most remakes, it wasn't as good. Which one was it? He used the I thought he did the Sam Bullet story arc in Ultimate Spider-Man. He did Death of George Stacy. I don't remember I don't, that. I don't remember Bullet. I'm sure he did the Bullet arc, because I remember reading it thinking this isn't as good as Stan Lee did it. Yeah, okay. But that's pretty much how I approach most of Ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, don't get me wrong, Ultimate Spider-Man was a fun read. Yeah. But ultimately I walked away Ultimate. <laughs> ultimately I would walk away with it going, Stan did it better. Well, up until Ultimatum... Yes. I really liked Ultimate Spider-Man because it was my version of Spider-Man. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I'm not saying Ultimate Spider-Man's bad, by any means. Fair enough. But, well, back to this issue. Yes, yes, yes. It was quite annoying to me. Why was it quite annoying Well, it was one of those stories that's only annoying because Spidey's innocent, but we're the only ones who know that. Yeah. Am I the only one who gets annoyed at that? Um, I think so. You just want to punch J. Jonah Jameson in the face because you know Spidey's innocent and not a menace, but everyone thinks he is. Yes. But in this case, you can understand why they thought Spidey was guilty. Yeah. Nobody was there when George Stacy was killed. Only he was seen on the top of the building. Dr. Octopus wasn't seen. Nobody saw George Stacy push the child out of the way, if memory serves. So this is all from memory, so if anyone's going to pick me up on it, you can do. Oh, so all of a sudden I'm thinking Ultimate Spider-Man was better at that, because 
everyone saw George Stacy save the child and he died a hero. So I don't remember any original George Stacy story. Hold that thought! Right, I have picked up my copy of The Death of the Stacy's Hardcover. Floral. And uh, I am looking through the issues. Spider-Man fights Dr. Octopus, Spider-Man fights Dr. Octopus. Oh yes, everybody does see him save the child. But then Spider-Man comes along and takes the body away. Ostensibly to get him to a doctor in the next building. So everyone thinks that Spider-Man's guilty of doing something here. Because he took the body away. And then the Sam Bullet storyline is introduced. And then, yeah, when Iceman attacks, is part of this issue. Yes, so the Sam Bullet storyline's in all that. So maybe you should read the whole thing. Should I? I think so. It's, it's jolly good and Spider-Man at its very best. I'll get round to it. And Iceman's as annoying as a clipboard man who won't go away even though you're ignoring the door. He, he stops Spidey twice once is understandable but the second time is just for no reason other than to have him then show up and go ah you were right all along. Yeah but I think he was only using him to plug the X-Men boot probably. Or had the X-Men boot been cancelled at that point? I don't know. I can't remember. I do like how Stan used to tie in stories at the beginning. So with what? Uh, with other boots? Iron Man team up with the X-Men and have Fantastic Four with Spider-Man and that. Yeah, alright. Fair enough. Yeah, I enjoyed some early Stanley stuff. Next! Amazing Spider-Man 131. If you know your Spidey, you know what's coming. You're all cover dating your head. April 1974. There's a cover by Gil Kane and Frank Gaiacoya of Aunt May marrying Dr. Octopus. Come on, that would so make you buy this comic. <laughs> Maybe not. Aunt May's face looks like it was re-drawn, redrawn by John Romita, doesn't it? Yeah. That doesn't look like a Gil Kane face. Uh, it has the truly classic line, with this ring, I the web. <laughs> it was called My Uncle, My Enemy, and was written by Jerry Conway, with art by Ross Andrew, Frank Gaiacoya, and Dave Hunt. In this infamous issue... Spider-Man watches as Aunt May proposed to marry Dr. Octopus, but Hammerhead, with whom Ock is embroiled in a gang war, interrupts. Ock, it turns out, is really only involved with May because she's just inherited an island in Canada with rich deposits of uranium and a nuclear reactor! <laughs> um, how did she inherit this? That's <laughs> said. Best. I didn't say best. I said favourites. <laughs> this is true. This is a thing. But this I, actually happened. We know. <laughs> uh, it ends with the island blowing up and Ock and Hammerhead presumed dead. In addition to the silliness mentioned above, we also learn here that Peter Parker can fly a supply plane. Yep. There's no beginning to his talents, is there? Uh, Even though... In, in in the Spider-Man stuff I'm reading, he can't fly. No, no, he, he really shouldn't be able to fly a plane. But he, he can't drive either, but Straczynski ignored that. that. That's what I found funny. Although he drove the Spider-Mobile, didn't he? Yeah. In in the Bendis run, hmm. where he's like, Tony creates a new Quinjet, and he's just like, I'll teach you how to fly one day. I don't have a license. What do you mean you don't have a license? Well, swinging around town, I didn't really need a car. Hmm. But he rode the Spider-Mobile. So did he do that well, illegally? Even Spidey doesn't like the Spidey-mobile. That's fair enough. Um, as a kid, I didn't care that this issue didn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. It had wall-to-wall action, two cool supervillains, and it ended the way all good sci-fi movies should end when you're ten. Stuff Explosion. blew up. 
This was published along with the preceding two issues in the UK Spider-Man Annual in 1975, which I read until the pages fell out, which you can verify, because mm. it's on your bookshelf upstairs. You used to read it to me. I did. I remember this from when you read it to me. Yeah, because it's a corker. <laughs> Rereading this for this countdown, I noticed that I can almost recite this word for word. You can recite most comics word for word. Most of the ones all that I think All of Spider. Yeah, all of the Spider-Man ones. As I said, if I was picking best Spider-Man stories, this wouldn't crack the top 50. If I'm brutally honest. Um, but I'm not. I'm picking favourites. And if this issue doesn't at least bring a smile to your face, you've read too many serious comics, to be honest with you. I've read too many serious comics and still smile at this. Yes. Probably, <laughs> probably because it's the you having read it to me before. Yeah. You can't beat nostalgia. Well, um, it, it was silly, though. It was very I'm, silly. I'm, I'm wondering how Hammerhead and... Otto survived the nuclear explosion <laughs> since they were the cause of it and were right at the epicenter. But I'm sure there is a perfectly reasonable explanation. Oh, yeah, yeah. They both come back. Since Dr. Octopus is in most of these issues you've chosen. Yes, he does seem to be um, a firm favourite of mine, doesn't he? Uh, we're going to take a quick break and plug Cyborgs, a bionic podcast by John Estrew and Paul K. Basin, which I uh, think is really good. It's one of my favourite podcasts at the minute. Okay. Covering every episode of the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman from the beginning. Okay. Well worth a listen if you're of a certain age and you have fond memories of running through the playground going. Like me. Yes, just like you. That's your fault though. And listen to this trailer, then go and give the podcast a go, and we'll be right back. I still do. To you. I still run around going like that because of you. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks with one guest host. The Six Million Dollar Man, the Bionic Woman, the mythology, a look behind the scenes, those sound effects, and the fashions. Oh my god, the fashions. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Hosted by John S. Drew and Paul K. Bisson. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. And we is back. Lads. For more exciting Spider-Man countdown. Great good Spider-Man issues here, lads. Great good, I think. Amazing Spider-Man 166 was covered dated March 1977. Uh, another issue that takes place in winter. I have no idea why so many of my favourite stories... Does it have Dr. Octopus in it? ...take place in winter? No, this one doesn't have Dr. Octopus in it. Get Spider-Man's ass again, though. Uh, again, this was published in Spider-Man Annual from about 1978, so maybe I chose stories that reflected the time of year. Probably. The cover to this one, again, has two Spider-Man villains, the Lizard and Stegron, taking on our heroes Snowfalls and Wreaths Hang, and is again by John Romita. The story, War of the Reptile Men, was written by Len Wein with art by Ross Andrew and Mike Asposito. In an effort to stop Stegron, the dinosaur man, Spider-Man heads over to Kurt Connors, who's only gone and turned himself into the lizard again. Tough. <laughs> 
Spider-Man finds out that Stegron had kidnapped Connors son Billy, so Connors will do some experiment for Stegron, but Kurt turned into the lizard instead. Stegron is trying to clone an army of dinosaurs and needs Kurt Connors to do it, but Spider-Man shows up and after a brief fight him at Feitenstein, forces the form of the down lizard's throat and makes him Kurt Connors again. Kurt reverses the effects of Stegron's dinosaur beam thing and Spider-Man chases Stegron down, who falls into the cold pond in Central Park and disappears below the cold being too much for him. All things considered, there's nothing really special about this story. But, dinosaurs. In New York! Dinosaurs! In New York! How is that not cool? Dinosaurs are always cool. Spider-Man versus dinosaurs, by its definition, has to be cooler. And yet, um, I, I remember you not letting me watch the American remake of Godzilla. Not because you thought it was scary or gruesome or anything like that. No. Because you thought it was just too crap. Yes, it's too crap to inflict upon you. I've never made you watch the remake of Planet of the Apes either. <laughs> for the same reason. I've made you watch all five original Planet of the Apes movies. You actually did, mate, You did it yourself. Yeah. But I've never made you watch the Tim Burton abomination that I refuse to admit exists. Yeah, you just did. No, it's, I, I, I'm just going to erase all that. I can delete it out. It's post-production. Yeah. <laughs> um... There's a lovely bit of sweet ending to this, as Stegron succumbs to the cold. In addition, Harry Osborn announces his engagement to Liz Allen, a development that would have ramifications for the characters for the next 20 years, but ultimately, dinosaurs <laughs> versus Spider-Man. <laughs> as enjoyable as this issue was. Really? Surely. Oh, okay. Sure, I just like that first page, to be honest. <laughs> War of the Reptile Man. Uh, actually, from the first... Page, uh, two pages from what Spidey's saying I genuinely thought that Stegron was a giant dinosaur attacking New York <laughs> very disappointed when he turned out to be this very disappointed when he just turns out to be one of those just metaphorical covers normal guy but um surely Stegron yes a man of science mm. would have known yes. that all the skeletons in the museum <laughs> Aren't real. Have you not seen a night at the museum? But the skeleton, so the skeleton comes to life. All these dinosaurs that come to life aren't real. They're plastic. They're not real dinosaur bones. They're not real dinosaur bones. So, surely you would have known that, and that (laughs) gun laser thing would have done nothing. You go, oh, right, yeah. (laughs) Fair me. Oh, okay, fair enough. It also felt like I was reading that those issues of Hitman with the dinosaurs, which also takes place over winter. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Or at least you enjoyed that one. Amazing Spider-Man 238 was smack dab in the middle of my comics golden age, which I consider to be about from 1979 to about 1987. It's cover dated March 1983 and was called In the Shadow of Evil's Past. It was written by Roger Stern with art by John Romita Jr. and John Romita Sr., one of the few artistic purrings. Boo and indeed yeah. The cover, again by Ramita, shows a menacing figure clad similarly to the Green Goblin of yore, but with a different colour scheme, tearing apart Spider-Man's costume. It's why the word awesome was invented. Peter is being a witness to Aunt May and Nathan Lubensky signing the paper that will make the house in Forest Hills where Peter grew up a boarding house for senior citizens. When they leave, May and Nathan are ran over by some bank robbers and Spider-Man, incensed, takes up the chase alongside New York's finest. Spidey takes down the criminals easily, but one named Georgie escapes and locates an old hideout of Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin. 
He turns what he knows over to the shadowy figure and is promptly killed for his troubles. The shadowy figure reads Osborne's journals and updates the tech and costume, christening himself the Hobgoblin. Um, an excellent issue. Story is a textbook example of how to update an old concept for a then contemporary audience, with Stern introducing the Hobgoblin without revealing his true identity. Tons of lovely little touches. Osborne Manufacturing is established as being in 1962. Spider-Man is so angry with the crooks who nearly kill May and Nate that he captures them without the customary wisecracks, plus a couple of cool flashbacks. The art is simply magnificent. Witness Spider-Man's bouncing on pages 4 and 7, his body language on page 5 and 6, and Spider-Signal! And it was just another example of why Stern may be the best Spider-Man writer since Stan, with his deft handling of character and plot, replete with wonderful scenes and character interaction. Finally, in true Parker fashion, he himself is semi-responsible for the creation of the Hobgoblin. And my copy still has the free tattoos. Okay. What did you think of that one, Michael? I, 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 it was good. It was good. Let's move on. It was good. Let's move on. In I, other words... I have a, I have an You excuse. didn't actually read that one. I have a decent Despite excuse. Despite me telling you we didn't have a digital copy of it and showing you where the paper copy was, <laughs> you couldn't... Yeah. It, it, it was, your, I, I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. No, no, but... <laughs> <laughs> I have a genuine... See how many people get that reference. I have a genuine excuse of... of, of not not of not seeing where the notes ended and so putting the previous issues notes for that one. And bringing your girlfriend home, thus distracting you from making your notes this week. That's nothing to do with it. Well, no, that actually wasn't. I, I did more notes when I got home than before. Number eight. Or number eight. Two. <laughs> or number three. It'd be number three, wouldn't it? Yeah. Number eight or number three, depending on your point of view. Amazing Spider-Man 240 is cover dated May 1983 and features a magnificent cover by Ramita Jr. and Bob Layton. There's a symbolic vulture looming large over Spider-Man who looks leaf yet muscular on the cover, Ramita Jr. having not yet fallen into the trap of making Spider-Man overly skinny with tiny ankles. The vulture in particular looks wonderfully menacing on the cover and the light background of the sun shining contrasts with his dark mood. The story, entitled Wings of Vengeance, was again by Roger Stern with art by Ramita Jr. and an rare piece of synergy, cover inker Bob Layton. Ramita Jr., despite being the regular penciler throughout Stern's run, never had a regular inker, and every single one of them, including Jim Mooney, Dan Green, Bob Layton, Frank Gaiacoya, his father, Ramita Sr., and Klaus Janssen, brought something new to Jr.'s pencils. Many have said that Jr.'s work started evolving during his X-Men and Daredevil runs following this, but the growth of the guy as an artist is really all in these Spider-Man pages, where he stopped being a clone of his dad and became one of the great Spider-Man artists in his own right. The story centres around a retired Adrian Toomes, a.k.a. the Vulture, who's living high on the hog in a retirement village, funding his easy life with a few discreet jobs as the Vulture. However, when he learns that Gregory Bessman has reopened for business, he swiftly comes out of retirement, booking the first available flight to New York. The Vulture arrives in New York the next day and hits the expo where Bessman is exhibiting his wares. The Vulture tears the place apart looking for Bessman as Spider-Man shows up to save the day, but is outclassed by a Vulture more driven and dangerous than ever before. Uh, once again, this was another in a line of truly magnificent two-parters that Stern wrote during his tenure in the book that included, but the cat came back, 
nothing can stop the juggernaut and hide in plain sight. But none were as good as this in the aforementioned Hobgoblin introduction, and for similar reasons. With the Hobgoblin, Stern gave an old adversary a new coat of paint, and with this story he gave another old adversary an origin that made you feel sympathy for the vulture. In addition, Stern moves the subplots along admirably. There are references in here to the goings-on in the contemporaneous Peter Parker comic, and the art is gorgeous. The two-page nightmare sequence is wonderfully realised, and Spidey's every bit as acrobatic as ever, but it's the little moments that shine. Spider-Man's speed, ably demonstrated on page 7, where he swings across the city before his skylight shuts, his brief swing over Midtown High School, and the wonderful sequence on page 13 where he changes clothes in mid-swing. Why this is never included in discussions about the best Spider-Man stories ever is a complete mystery to me. Stern has said that for him... The Vulture, with his age versus youth, experience versus vitality formula, is his favourite Spider-Man villain, and in the three issues he wrote with him as the antagonist, he pays the winged septuagenarian his dues. Oh no, what did you think of that one, Michael? I, I did like the art in this. Did you? Especially the dream sequence. Although, story-wise, there's not much of an opinion. You don't have an opinion on it? I suppose... You have to look at it contextually. It was one of those things that it's been 20 years and yet nobody had ever told the Vulture's origin. Fair enough. This was the first telling of the Vulture's origin. And yet, the last time I'd heard of the Vulture, he was dying. Uh, Yeah, he got better. Oh, of course. (laughs) He came back from that nuclear explosion. He made a a startling recovery. Fair enough. So, what happened to Hammerhead and Dr. Oxford, though? Uh, Dr. Octopus manages to come away but is a bum with no memory if memory serves and Hammerhead is a ghost haunting him and Dr. Octopus actually manages to reform Hammerhead from the ghostly particles of his spectral form bringing him back to life and Dr. Octopus regains his memory if memory serves (laughs) it's no worse than the clone saga dude and so we reach the end of Spider-Man Month, our little tribute to arguably the most popular character in comics, but definitely Marvel's most popular character. The choice of my favourite story was hotly contested, and though I thought about it for a really long time before, as with all things like this, it became readily apparent there was only one choice. Or two. Maybe two. I first read the upcoming tale in the Spider-Man Pocketbook, a series of black and white UK reprint magazines that, as the name suggests fitted into your pocket. Slightly bigger in size than the DC Digest, these normally have two or three complete issues in every edition and were quite popular for a time with a number of titles being published. They predated the Marvel Tales reprints of the early 80s if I recall, and were the first time I read a number of these early Lee Ditko classics. These two issues are so intrinsically linked in my mind I had a hard time separating them for this, and thus picked both of them for my final top two Think of it as being my favourite Spider-Man story, because I first read them back-to-back in one comic, so it's hard for me to separate them in my mind. Amazing Spider-Man 11 had an April 1964 cover date. The cover of Doctor Octopus pinning down Spider-Man in what, at first glance, looks like the hold of a ship is really good. My preferred Doctor Octopus is the regular clothes-wearing version, but I acknowledge that this is probably because that was my first introduction to the character. The jumpsuit look always looked a bit daft to me. There's more cover copy on this comic than there is in the entirety of most modern comics, but even so, the art doesn't feel crowded. In fact, it's all the more chilling for its confinement. Spidey looks really good on the ropes here, and Ock has rarely been more menacing. As if the cover proclaiming that this was the long-awaited return of Dr. Octopus wasn't enough, the splash page makes it quite apparent, even building it into the title of the issue. 
Turning Point, featuring the return of Dr. Octopus, was written by Stan Lee. And none but he could have written this epic tale, states the credit box. None but Steve Ditko could have drawn these gripping scenes, it continues. But alas, poor old Sam Rosen gets no such epithets. Presumably any old office monkey could have lettered this story. It's one of those symbolic splashes with Betty Brandt pounding on Spider-Man's chest that she hates you, Spider-Man. I hate you till the day I die. As Spidey stands there, kind of helpless, as the spectral figure of Dr. Octopus lurks in the background. The splash is filled with pathos, plugging Spider-Man's doomed relationship with Betty, the diabolical Dr. Octopus, and Spider-Man's most bitter disappointment. The story opens with Peter Parker, clad in his costume but sans mask, mooning over Betty Brandt, who has recently up sticks with no word. Because Peter's a geek, he's listening to news radio rather than the hip music of the day, and this expositions that Dr. Octopus has served his time and is to be released today. Peter flashes back to issue three and his last battle with Ock and starts bricking it. Ock nearly defeated him before. He heads over to a municipal prison where, oddly, nobody shoots at him, to speak to the warden. The warden basically tells Spider-Man that the man has served his time and that's how the law works, so bugger off and bother somebody else. Ock, meanwhile, lights up a smoke and thinks about how smart he was trying not to escape. I was busy thinking how not smart the penal system in New York seems to be as they'd let him keep his arms on. Spider-Man heads home and, not trusting Ock as far as he can spit, invents a spider tracer using stone knives and burr skins. He heads back to the prison just in time to see Doc Ock being picked up by... Betty Brandt. Golly. Spidey hurls his spider tracer at the car as it speeds off. He picks up a map that Ock conveniently drops and deduces that they are heading to Philadelphia, it being a map of Philadelphia. Nothing gets past him, does it? No. Positively Sherlockian in his deductive reasoning, isn't he? In that self-same Philadelphia, we don't see Bruce Springsteen or Tom Hanks. We see Betty's brother and lawyer, Bettinit Brandt, talking to his client, Blackie Gaxton, the second Blackie of the run. Do you think Stan liked that nickname for some reason? Gaxton reminds Brandt that he is in hock for considerable coin and he'd better be following the plan. Brandt says he is and then muses on how the top man in class ended up working for the most ruthless mobster in the East. He's talking about himself, obviously. He also bemoans involving Betty. Speaking of, Ock is currently whining that she isn't a stunning conversationalist and seems to be threatening her. Bennett arrives and Ock bitch slaps him and they retire to cover the finer details of Gaxton's plan. Back home, Peter concocts some cock and bull story about visiting Philly to see some historical sites, by which he means he wants his fist to revisit Ock's face, and with May's blessing, he heads out that very night. He swings all over Philadelphia until his tracking device picks up a signal from his trace and switches back to Peter Parker to scout the area. Purely by happenstance, this kind of coincidence happens all the time in comic books, he bumps into Betty Brandt. Betty breaks down and spills the beans, see? She tells him all about Bennett and his involvement with Ock and Gaxton and how they plan on breaking Gaxton out of prison tonight. Peter tells her that Spider-Man is in Philly. How coincidental. And also decides that when they're back in New York, he's going to tell her his secret. Ock, meantime, is in the process of busting Gaxton out of prison, for which he'll be paid $100,000. They head over to Gaxton's getaway ship, where he'll receive his payment. Mere seconds later, Spider-Man arrives and is promptly blamed for the breakout. Gaxton's men are taking Betty and Bennett to the steamer, which is where Ock is headed with Gaxton, and Spider-Man follows thanks to his tracer. Bennett quickly realises Gaxton will never let him go, especially after Gaxton punches him in the face and says as much. Nothing gets past him, does it? Spider-Man arrives, but twists his ankle as he lands. He's captured by Gaxton's men and taken below, where only Ock is pleased to see him. Ock betrays Gaxton, threatening to take over, and Spider-Man strikes. He manages to take down Gaxton's men quite easily and throws one into Ock, knocking him down the stairs and into the hold. Gaxton goes for his gun, and Spidey leaps to stop him, but in the ensuing fracas, 
Bennett is shot and killed. Betty blames Spider-Man for this, but Spider-Man has no time to dwell on this development as Gaxton makes a run for it. Fuming, Spider-Man leaps after him, and despite having two gangsters clinging to him and punching him, he strides towards Gaxton like a man possessed and punches him clear across the deck. The main event, however, is still loose. Dr. Octopus peers from below and pursues our hero. Spider-Man gets away temporarily but finds his twisted ankle slowing him down. Elsewhere, the remaining gangsters are making a break for it with Ock's money and take Betty as a hostage. Doc Ock intervenes, taking the money and leaps over to the boat to pick up Gaxton. Spider-Man follows him, but on the much smaller tugboat has a lot less room to manoeuvre and Ock starts to gain the upper hand. See what I did there? Ock and... Never mind. Fortunately, a police launch arrives investigating the disturbance. The pilot of the tug, who'd rather take his chances in the sea, and then between two battling behemoths, leaps for freedom, and Spider-Man gets lucky as, pilotless, the tug crashes into the pier, throwing both combatants into the drink. Spider-Man elects to swim for it rather than answer any awkward police questions, but from atop the docks he sees the police arrest Gaxton and his men. He webs up his ankle and best he can, and disappears to find Betty. Later, Peter is comforting Betty, who says the police cleared her of all wrongdoing, all she really did was give a guy a lift. And she realises that Spider-Man isn't to blame for Bennett's death, but to see him again would be too painful. Peter says he understands and he's sure Spider-Man would too, if he knew. Realising he can't tell Betty his secret, Peter takes his leave and walks alone into the Philadelphia night. Page two, Ditko's art's phenomenal. In fact, Ditko's art's phenomenal through this entire issue. From the first panel, Peter's despair over the disappearance of his girl. Are you going to argue with me about Ditko again? Um... The disappearance of his girlfriend, the raw panic on Peter's face as the news of Ock releases to his joyous body language as he swings across down. Ditko nails the raw emotion in each panel. There's also the subtext that Peter isn't so much preventing Ock's release due to his menacing of mankind as there is just the tiniest hint of desperation. Mm. Did you not think? I love that we have the spider signal. I do like that the warden basically tells Spider-Man to butt out of his business. Contextually, if you recall, comic book readers were used to heroes having a pally relationship with the warden. I doubt that the warden in DC Comics of the time would have told Superman or Batman to bugger off. It's kind of unlikely. Um, Peter proved his smarts in the issue by creating global positioning, which I thought was quite cool. Uh, there are people that bang on about how could a kid invent web fluid, but the fact that he invented his spider tracer seems to just pass them right by. Mm. Uh, the answer, of course, is because he's smart. That's how he can do it. I, I do like in these early issues, Peter has a little tracking device to yeah. track his spider signals, devices, things, spider traces. Later on, it would be his spider he sense. tunes it into his spider sense, yeah. Um, but the Hobgoblin neutralises his spider sense in issue 248, and he has to dig that tracer thing out again and use that again, okay. which is a really lovely little touch. I think he lost it again recently, but got it back again. He got his spider. He lost his spider sense again. Yeah, in a dance slot one, but he's got it back again now. Mm. Yeah, there's no such thing as an original idea. No anymore. Uh, all facetiousness aside, when I was reading this as a kid, I did not see Betty being in collusion with Doc Ock. Uh, um, I did think it was a bit of a stretch and very convenient that Peter deduces where they're going from a license plate and a map that Doctor Octopus dropped. If they drop the map, how's Betty going to get there now? Because we all know women have no sense of direction. Oh. <laughs> um. I, I just love this issue. I really did. I've long been of the opinion that the early Spider-Man comics were film noir crossed with superheroes with a dash of soap opera and it's no more readily apparent than in this story. We've got shyster lawyers, dames in distress, gambling debts, jailbreaks, black hats and heavies and it all takes place in the seedier side of town, prisons and abandoned locales. When Frank Miller took over Daredevil he essentially turned it into Spider-Man circa 1964. 
Um, there are a few issues. The timeline for this issue is all over the place. The news states that Ock is to be released today, and it already looks like it's night time when Spidey arrives at the prison. It's definitely dusk when Peter plants the spider tracer on the car, but it only takes about two hours to drive to Philly from New York. It's possible that this was Thursday night after school. Peter attended school on Friday and then left after speaking to Aunt May, arriving late on Friday night. The flight to Philly is only one hour. It could also have been in the winter, so the nights were dark early. None of this explains how the permanently cash-strapped Peter Parker afforded a ticket to Philadelphia. It's also a huge coincidence that Peter could find Betty in Philadelphia. The scene between them is quite sweet, though, so I'll give it a pass. Peter's a lovesick puppy, but it's kind of cute in the way that first love is cute. Okay. It doesn't really make sense that Doc Ock needs to take a job breaking Gaxon out of prison to make money, though. Couldn't he just steal his own money? Uh, Seemed a bit odd, that. He doesn't seem like the type to work for anyone. Yeah. In true Spider-Man fashion, Spidey's blamed for Gaxton's escape, yet none of this is done in a way that makes Spider-Man or Peter seem like a sad sack. Spider-Man isn't a nationally trusted figure, so it's not unusual for the police to think Spider-Man may be to blame, especially as he's out of his environment. This kind of writing is something the current Spider-Man writers would be advised to look at when concocting problems for Spider-Man. I did love Spider-Man twisting his ankle, which I thought was a lovely little touch, the kind of thing that could happen to any of us, normally at completely inopportune moments, and it's little touches like this that made Spider-Man stand out from the crowd. Ditko's fight scenes are rather subtle, and have Spider-Man take out all of the gangsters without touching the floor, keeping the weight off his ankle, and throwing them into Doc Ock, and his taunting of the good doctor raises a wry smile. It's also quite easy to see from the setup that Bennett's going to be cannon fodder before the first few pages are up. Still, it's really quite shocking when he gets shot. Maybe because of the time it was released, where this kind of sudden senseless death was still quite rare in mainstream comics, maybe because our hero spectacularly fails to save somebody close to his girlfriend, maybe even the fact that Betty takes out her grief on Spider-Man, which is really handled very well, with Spider-Man completely torn up inside. Maybe it's all these things, but the introduction of so normal a death into the fantastical really packs a punch. It's followed by Spider-Man fuming with rage and just striding towards Gaxton with a look of clear determination on his face, which is a neat artistic trick given a full face mask. With all the gangsters still clinging to him, he hoists Gaxton above his head and punches him an easy 12 feet. Uh, I love some of the panels um, where Spider-Man takes out two thugs with a double punch from both fists, and I loved panel six where Spidey swings back up onto the deck. Uh, I loved Spider-Man on the run and injured, still managing to make smart-ass comments to Dr. Octopus, and Ditko nails the first panel on page 19, Spider-Man leaping in to stop Dr. Octopus, who stands waiting whilst the terrified tugboat pilot freaks out in the background. All of Ditko's fight work's excellent. The final page is really good. Betty's fine, but shaken, and we get one of those typically bittersweet endings so replete in the lead Ditko era. The final panel of Peter walking alone into the darkness with Spider-Man walking alongside is awesome. Um, I thought this was an excellent issue. Everything that Spider-Man is encapsulated in its pages, there's triumph and tragedy, bad luck, good luck, a bittersweet ending, some excellent art, and some quite tight plotting. The only thing missing is a school scene, but in every other respect, this is Lee Ditko starting to really find the feet with the character, and at this point, the series started to really hit its stride. It's also arguably the first nail in the coffin that was the Peter-Betty romance. I don't have much of an opinion. See, you're right. Because with the Lee Ditko stuff, if I don't like the story, I, I, I don't like the art anyway. What's not to like about the story? Well, I, I, I don't like the art anyway, and if the story's en- unenjoyable, because we all know I'm not into that type of writing... Good writing. 
No. It's flowery writing. <laughs> it's not flowery. It's written as It's a, merely verbose. Jean Paul Valley were writing it. Jean Paul Valley is flowery, but he's a pompous, pretentious ass. He's supposed to be. Right. Stan is just verbose. There's no pretension in any of this. Well, no, it's still flowery, though. I disagree. I don't think it's flowery. I think there's some overly verbose panels. I think there is some extraneous exposition, but contextually, again, comics were designed to be read and disposed. Stan had no idea if you'd read the last issue. He had no idea if you are going to read the next issue. So he had to tell his story in one issue. Right, okay. And he does it very well. But it's still not the type of... But anyway. Anyway. But, so I don't like the art. No. And if I don't like the story... No. Then it's an issue I don't like. But we're... I'm not saying anything. With a Lee Romito issue... If I don't like the story, I like the art anyway. Arguably, in the initial run, Lee Ramita's issues were more simplistic than the Lee Ditko ones. I just like Ramita out the better. Towards the end of the run, and once you start getting into the 70s and 80s and they start doing more political subtext, Stan actually starts playing around with his writing and getting himself involved in issues of the day that were affecting teenagers. But certainly after Ramita comes on in 38... And for that first year or so, I would argue that first year of Ramita is actually just rehashing old stuff. The Lizard comes back. The Vulture comes back. Craven comes back, I think, around that point. Okay. And then Spidey loses his memory. Fair enough. <laughs> but with this issue... Yes. It was just... I didn't dislike it, but I didn't like it either. But Because I don't think Otto is the type of person who would work for anyone... And there's my thing where if Bennett was Betty's brother, then how come they both had completely different hair? What colour is your hair, Michael? Well... What colour is your sister's hair, Michael? What? <laughs> there was a time... There was a time when you were a blondie. Really blonde? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. And finally, after Michael's articulate ramblings... Yeah. <laughs> finally, the number one... My all-time favourite Spider-Man story. Amazing Spider-Man 12... Which has the best cover ever. ...has an excellent cover. <laughs> Dr. Octopus is dancing. <laughs> yes, well, you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> Picked up the tale and was first published in the US with a cover dated May 1964 and has an iconic cover. <laughs> Dr. Octopus dancing. Co- Dr. Octopus is dancing. <laughs> yeah, holding the limp-bodied <laughs> Dr. Octopus is doing the YMCA on the cover. <laughs> Holding the limp body of Spider-Man as he rips off his mask before the stunned faces of J. Jonah Jameson, Betty Brant, and numerous unnamed What's officers J. Jonah of the Jameson law. doing though? It's explained in the issue. <laughs> have you read it? I have. Quickly. You sure? <laughs> that was before the show. Oh dear. Whilst the lurid yellow background is a little overbearing, the cover copy is simply Stan at his hyperbolic best. Not a dream. Not an imaginary tale. You'll gasp in amazement when Peter is unmasked by Dr. Octopus. This, the latest and greatest Spider-Man super spectacular, is not just an example of Stanley playfully needling the competition. It's quite simply one of the single best pieces of comic art ever published. As an 11-year-old Spider-Fan, how could you not want to pick that up? Just look at that cover. And imagine it's Andrew Garfield on that face. I don't mind Andrew Garfield. I have no issues whatsoever with Andrew Garfield. 
He's an excellent young actor. I think he will be an excellent Peter Parker. It, it was my joke on how he's always taking his mask off in that trailer. There is that. Yeah. Anyway, let's not talk about that. <clears throat> Following right on from last issue, Unmasked by Dr. Octopus was written in the white heat of inspiration by Stan Lee, drawn in a wild frenzy of enthusiasm by Steve Ditko, and lettered in a comfortable room by Art Simic. Art Simic gets a nice little... What's it for his lettering this time? Does it? Mm, didn't last time. Spider-Man. Complained. Maybe he did. <laughs> Spider-Man heads over to the Bugle office to give Jonah a mouthful for lambasting him in print once more, but he forgets all about this when he sees Betty Branty's back from a trip to Philadelphia from last issue. Elsewhere, Dr. Octopus commits a series of daring crimes to attract Spider-Man's attention. Spider-Man, however, being a true-to-life youngster, doesn't have the time or money to follow Ock around the country, and besides, his aunt thinks he's feeling a bit warm. He must be getting a cold. Peter heads to Midtown High where he sees his classmates all reading a newspaper. Turns out they're reading about Spider-Man and ask Peter for his opinion. Peter demures, saying that Spider is icky and Flash deservedly takes the piss out of him for this. At the bugle, Ock calls Betty to make sure she's back and then waits for the rest of the day before actually attacking, giving Peter time to show up after school. Ock snatches Betty and manhandles the only people who work at the bugle, telling them that Spider-Man must go to Coney Island if he is to save Betty Brandt. Ock also says he will allow one photographer. Jonah gets a quick special edition out instead of using the TV station we've seen him use before, and Peter just hangs around instead of taking after Doc Ock and whines about feeling ill. He then pretends to do nothing as he shows up later as Spider-Man and demands to be told all the stuff he already knows. That done, he heads off to Coney Island, but notes his adhesive hands aren't quite as adhesive as usual. I wonder if he's sick. Jonah decides that Peter is far too useless to be left with such a big job and takes off to Coney Island himself. In the meantime, Betty has managed to escape herself and Spider-Man shows up to punch Doc Ock. Ock notes that Spider-Man punches like a small underfed child and Spider-Man feels a bit woozy. Ock cleans his clock and unmasks him just as Betty, Jonah and a few officers arrive. The officers berate Jonah for withholding information but choose to take Peter home instead of, you know, arresting him for obstruction of police justice. Doc Bromwell says he has a 24-hour virus and he'll be fine in a day or so and sure enough, the next morning he's bouncing around like Batrock. He puts his costume back on and stuffs a bag with rags and tells Aunt May he's burning the costume. At school, the kids rib him for impersonating Spider-Man, except Liz Allen, who seems to have developed a bit of a crush. Ock, meanwhile, is sat ripping up copies of the Bugle, says that he's a laughingstock due to having been fooled by a teenager. He decides he's had enough hiding and takes off to New York, releasing a bunch of zoo animals because he can after school, Peter has to ditch an infatuated Liz and an annoyed Flash, just in time to save a few hapless passers-by from a naughty lion. The only two policemen in New York tell Spider there are a number of these beasts, and Spider-Man spends a few pages fighting a gorilla and a burr. Dr. Octopus is busy tearing up the city, tossing off cars, <laughs> and generally annoying the only two cops in New York. He drops a street sign on some unsuspecting passers-by, but before it can clobber them, Spidey webs it up and the crowd, ooh and ah, and this is gonna be good! Conveniently, Ock is doing all of this within easy distance of the Daily Bugle, so Jonah and Betty can watch it all unfold. Spider-Man and Ock engage in fighting McFightenstein. Spidey runs up a smokestack, but Ock is in hot pursuit. Spider-Man manages to tie Dr. Octopus to the smokestack, but Ock frees himself and a chase across town ensues. Ock manages to corner Spider-Man. Some more fighty, but Ock manages to snare Spidey, and both combatants plummet into a nearby scaffold. The weight causes them to crash through a nearby skylight into a sculptor's studio. In true Jack McGee fashion, Ock causes a fire and is trapped under a large stone statue. Spidey can't get to him because of the fire and rather sensibly elects to save his own skin. He uses his web shoe to create a makeshift, albeit temporary, fireproof shield and escapes out of a nearby window. 
Ock is captured by the only two policemen in New York, and Peter gets paid for the pictures he took, as well as getting to insult Flash Thompson. The end. Notes. Did you read this one? I did. Okay, fair enough. Page one is a fantastic splash page. A forlorn-looking Peter Parker takes centre stage, dressed in his costume but with his mask in his hand, as various teases and highlights from the issue you're about to read adorn the page. I love the idea that Joan has a picture of Spider-Man above his typewriter for inspiration, and every now and again he just shakes his fist at it. <laughs> there was darts at it. Yeah, there was darts at Spider-Man's picture. That would be very amusing. I like how that picture is him just sat there shaking his fist at it. The yeah, it is actually on the cover and shaking his fist. Page two, panel one, Spider-Man overrated crime fighter, says the caption in the bugle. Which is fine, I suppose, being as the bugle seems to be run entirely by a staff of two. And one of them just quit. I always got the feeling Stan liked writing Jonah, especially in the early stories where he's a bit of an anti-Perry White, a cantankerous and often unlikable figure instead of White's avuncular father figure. I do quite like how uh, Jonah's always writing about Spidey, though. Yeah. Never anything else. No. Just Spider. He's obsessed, isn't he? Uh, Page three, if Dr. Octopus is really trying to smoke out Spider-Man, why didn't he just head to New York in the first place? And the kids in New York really read newspapers at school. I mean, I suppose nowadays they'd read it all on the phone, wouldn't they? (laughs) He he looks quite sad on that page, doesn't he? He looks all forlorn, like I'm robbing stuff and robbing money and and stuff like that. But But I just don't get any thrill from it anymore. (laughs) I want to fight a teenager. Nothing gives me the thrill but Spider-Man punching me in the face. (laughs) Uh, Page four is quite ridiculous, to be honest with you. To try and convince the world of the inherent danger of Spider-Man, do you want to publish a picture of a spider... (laughs) to tell the world how dangerous they are. And Peter, really, spiders are icky. No wonder he gets picked on. He even refers to himself as a teenage Billy Graham, who's a Christian televangelist and preacher, so I don't get that comparison. Uh, You know, some spiders do look deadly, though. Yeah, but... You know, the Canadian house spider looks exactly like a facehugger from... uh, From Alien, Alien, yeah. Excellent. We'll stay away from that, then. Um, when Ock phones Betty on the same page, he doesn't speak, but Betty still recognises his voice, which I found a bit unusual. Um, she recognises the voice that doesn't know. Yeah, because later on in the issue, she actually said, I thought it was your voice. He doesn't say anything. <laughs> I thought it was your muffled breathing. <laughs> Unless, of course, panel five of this at page, where Ock speaking to himself while hanging up the phone actually takes place as Ock is hanging up the phone. Which means if Ock didn't speak to himself and tell himself his plans, Betty wouldn't have known who it was. Yeah. Which doesn't make no sense at all. Page five, panel two is hilarious. Ock grabs a hold of Jonah and Peter, and Jonah says, Don't just dangle, Parker! Tell him who I am! <laughs> Peter then decides to not reveal his identity, so he does bugger all whilst Ock, rather reasonably for a master criminal, tells Peter and Jonah where he will be, when he'll be there, and that one photographer will be allowed to attend to see Spider-Man's defeat. Only one. It's very convenient, that, wasn't it? Yeah. Of course, Jonah sends Peter, because there is no one else at the Bugle to send. No. Is <laughs> there? It's like the Daily Planet and the 50s Superman TV series. That paper is put out by four people. Yeah, I'm a big skyscraper, but there's only two people. Yeah, there's only a few people working in the building. <laughs> Every once in a while, they'll have a game of Laser Quest in there. <laughs> On page six, no, the rest of you rents the rest of the building out to uh, make money from students. <laughs> page six, Peter really can't care about Betty that much. I don't know how long a special edition of a newspaper takes to produce, but surely it would have made more sense to go after Ock straight away when he wasn't expecting him. Instead, 
Peter presumably helps Jonah hand print a few copies of the Bugle because he's far too cheap to run an extra printing press. Granted, it would be a huge expense to publish a brand new edition of a newspaper just to add the one note about meeting Spider-Man. But Peter must have an awful lot of spare time this evening. Is that man not worried where he is? <laughs> Especially given that he's got a fever. That means always worried where he is. Yeah, so there you go. Page 8. I really like the panels here. Uh, as Ock hands Spider-Man his head and unmasks him quite easily. I also like that the cops call Jonah out on not telling him he knew where Ock was. Jonah frequently gets away with murdering these early issues because, presumably, his money talks. Mm. He's established as being a very wealthy man. Page nine, we see Peter in bed that night. Who undressed him and took his costume off him? Betty? Think about that. Yeah. He's in bed, though. He puts his costume back on. Yeah. Who took his costume off him? Um, Aunt May? That's even creepier. (laughs) Let's just say Betty did it. Let's just say Betty did it. Yeah. And and got a pick at Peter Parker's pickled peppers. That that policeman. (laughs) No, no, that's how the policeman didn't do it. Uh, Page 10 (laughs) starts the long-running subplot of Liz being amorously infatuated with Peter, much to Flash Thompson's chagrin and Peter's annoyance. And she even gets to be one of the first people to meet Murray Jane Watson. Okay. Before we do. I also love the idea that Ock just sits in a basement all day spewing out hatred. Shaking his fist at yeah, pictures, by the way. That's very funny. Page 11, we have some Stan Teen speak. I have well, no idea what give me a tumble means. Do you? You're a teenager. Tickle the dogs. I don't want to. No, I, I, I have no idea. I have no but idea. He should be great at writing teenagers. I mean, the tribute to teenagers issue, which didn't feel like it tribute tributed me at all. Did you not feel tributed? I did not. Did you not feel that that issue paid you tribute? No, felt uh, a little let down. Yeah, fair enough. He's doing what to the human torch? <laughs> Why? I don't want to know. On page 12, are the police really hunting these animals with nothing but a net? There's only two of them. Yeah, there's only two, the only two police in New York City. Do they don't have any tranquilizers? Or guns? <laughs> Presumably. Um, page 14, the only cops in New York refer to Spider-Man as a regular Frank Buck. Did you get that? Uh, no. Frank Buck was a famous big game hunter and performer, and his book Bring Them Back Alive was the inspiration of the 80s TV show of the same name, starring Tron. Uh, okay. Bruce Boxleitner was in it. So, was he like the real Craven? Yeah, kind of. Fair enough. I do find it silly how Dr. Octopus can't fight Spider-Man himself, so has to get animals to do it. I didn't get that he got the animals to fight Spider-Man, I just got that he freed the animals for the crowd. Go my pet <laughs> <laughs> I just think he felt like it. I'm bored. Let's free some animals from the zoo. The animals for yeah. lion. <laughs> Maybe he was auditioning to be uh, the one. red ghost and his super apes. Oh yeah. Uh, panel three though is really good with Doc Ock just tossing cars and pedestrians running for the hills in the midst of the chaos. Um, there's a like, lone cop. I like how it looks like the stilt man. He does look a bit like the stilt man, doing yeah, that, doesn't he? There's only one cop because the other one's going around chasing animals with a net. I, I love that panel because there's the cop in the foreground telling people there's no reason to be alarmed. <laughs> Ignore the man with eight arms behind me throwing cars across the street. <laughs> he only has six. Legs. Arms. Legs. He only has six this arms. This counted as limbs. You <laughs> didn't say six limbs. Um, Alright, fair enough. Um, Ock also seems to think that uh, dropping a sign in a largely empty street will show the city that he's not fooling. <laughs> he's like, I will drop this, this neon sign where nobody's around to see it. But 
it will show them that I mean business. If a neon sign falls in the street and no one's there to hear it. <laughs> Spidey, it does make a noise. <laughs> Page 15, it looks intentional, but Spider-Man manages to soak Jonah with a busted water tower. Which I thought was funny. Mm. Page 16, I love Ditko's art on page 16, even though you probably don't. Ock is cumbersome compared to Spider-Man, often just a blur of red and blue. But it always feels like Spider-Man's on the run. I do think when Dr. Octopus is handled correctly, he may be my favourite Spider-Man adversary. And it was quite gratifying to see Alfred Molina give such a great performance as Ock in Spider-Man 2. It's a shame he was saddled with the tedious and predictable dead wife motivation. I would have liked to have just seen a Doctor Octopus that was just mean. Yeah. For the sake, they did the same with Sandman in Spider-Man Three. Oh, let's give him a sappy motivation. I don't want him to have a motivation. <laughs> just make him a bastard. <laughs> Put explosions. Yeah. Page eighteen, panel three is one of my all-time favourite Spider-Man drawings, and he's truly awesome in black and white. Spider uses the momentum to hurl himself at Doctor Octopus and lands a smooth right cross to the jaw. Ock's arms are flailing as Spidey catches him off balance and his glasses askew as Spider-Man socks it to him. The impact is diluted somewhat in colour as the colourist decides to colour everything in yellow and purple. In the essential, that's fantastic. Yeah. Because it's just black and white. It's a brilliant piece of art. By contrast, page 19, the grayscale colouring in panel 3 as the onlookers see Spider-Man Doctor Octopus take a fall is really quite cool. The lack of colour gives the moment a feeling of stark terror. I also love Ditko's art in the studio with the sculptures and the abandoned works. It would have been a nice touch if this was Alicia Masters' studio. Yeah. It would have been nice to tie that in with the Fantastic Four. Of course then, Spider-Man would have been blamed for burning Alicia's studio to the ground. Mm. But, you know. Page 20, there's some more excellent Ditko compositions as the dark shading on Spider-Man's back in panel 5 is offset by the lighting on panel 6 as the flame starts snapping at Spider-Man's heels. You Come on, you can't not like that page. I like the statues. <sighs> I despair. <laughs> page 21, whilst the five-panel exploration of how Spider-Man's web shooters work may seem a little incongruous in the middle in the of fire. a big action sequence... As a kid, I loved this sequence. I loved the close-up on his belt with the mounted camera, the shots of the cartridge and how they slot into his shooters and the nozzle and trigger switch. Yes, I am one of those people who actively loathe Spider-Man having organic web shooters in the movie. The web shooters serve two functions. One, they show how smart Peter is. And two, and more importantly, I thought, have you tried using your own bodily functions to do practical stuff? It's gross. Painting with weed. Yeah, it's, it's well, painting with paste that comes out if you use it for something other than we. I'll let you ponder that. But anything that is expelled from inside your body stinks. I didn't know you could poo from that. That's not what I was talking about. It does. Anything you, you bring out of your body, puke, mm-hmm. spit. Well, spit doesn't smell much, but puke, poo, urine, smells. Children stink when they are born because they have been expelled from inside a human body. So think how much of this stuff Peter has to be generating organically for this to work. Compare the amount of waste you expel in a day. Well, maybe not you because you're abnormal in the amount that you go to the toilet. But an average person. Compare the amount of waste an average person expels in a day and the amount of webbing that Peter uses in those movies and it will give you some idea of just how impractical an idea organic webbing is. In fact, try go on. Try and fill well, a bucket with your bodily functions. That was explored in 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 
One more day. Was it really? How did they explore it in One More Day? Because in the other, he dies and gives birth to himself. Yes. And so he's natural and more like a spider. Yes. So the weapon is natural. But throughout Civil War and Back in Black, he, he, he just, he's like, right, okay, I can shoot webs at my arms. That's, that's cool. Doesn't he have those stingers as well? Yeah, he gets rid of that. It's, like, it's only in it for like three issues. Good. Um, and then... In one more day, when uh, Tony Stark's all, ha ha, found you. <laughs> I'm a bad guy now. He, he goes, um, he, he goes, huh? I wonder how much webbing I could use. And he goes, <laughs> and he, he gets Iron Man in a giant cocoon so that he can't move or burn his way out. And he goes, huh? Cool. So it doesn't actually answer the question of how much webbing you can generate. A lot. Yeah. All right. So compare that to your bodily functions. And then he goes really, really thin and goes, "Oh, science." Try filling a bucket with your daily bodily functions. I could. Yes, you could. <laughs> but the average person couldn't. It would take an awful How long time. How big of a bucket are we talking? Just an average size bucket that window cleaners use to clean your windows. You probably could do that. You probably could. Drink a lot of water. But let me ask you this: Would you want to be covered with something that came out of somebody's body? He regularly uses that webbing to web up Jonah's mouth. <laughs> That's your money shot right there. I love Peter David as a writer, I really do, but the organic webbing thing just causes more problem than it resolves. And I, I don't care about how the 16-year-old can make this yet he's always broke argument, because I would rather have that than a Spider-Man who essentially craps and pees all over New York City. It dissolves, doesn't it? So does your poo, eventually. <laughs> I still wouldn't want you to smear it over my mouth, because that would be quite gross. And yet, if a baby's sick, it's adorable. No, it isn't. <laughs> it really isn't. Do not let people con you into thinking that. Babies being sick is not adorable. Oh, I, I wasn't saying that I think it's adorable. No, it's awful. Awful, awful, awful. So I let other people handle babies. Would you like to hold this baby? No! No, oh, no. no, I have no interest in your baby. I'll let it come to me when it wants to. <laughs> uh, page 22, the ending's a bit pat. Because there's no reason that Ock can't use his arms, even in a depleted condition. But after the sheer grimness of last issue, this was, despite the downbeat splash page, a wonderfully upbeat finale. There's so much good stuff here. The Spider-Man symbol in the top corner of page one, Ock's obsession with Spider-Man clouding his judgement, Ditko's half-Spidey, half-Peter Parker face on page four and five, Jonah sacrificing everything for a story, even Betty's life and his complete lack of concern for either of them. The first time a cold laid Peter out, the wonderfully surreal dream sequence with Spider-Man telling Peter off, the start of Liz's interest in Peter, and Peter continuing to stand up to Flash, the over-the-top fight scene, and unusual for Spider-Man, a happy ending, but the spectre of Spider-Man still looms large over the final panel. Lee and Ramita developed the Spider-Man template that is still being followed today, but Lee and Ditko build the foundations and that oh there's a Marvel Masterwork pinup as well in this issue of Peter wearing a tank top <laughs> he never was very cool was he no. let's be honest uh, and that concludes Spider-Man Month I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed reading the issues and talking about them I thank you for tolerating it for me <laughs> uh, next time um, are we straight into Night's End? Yeah. Yes, we are. So next time, Batman Night's End, we'll be wrapping up the Night Trilogy. And then it's your Flashpoint and New 52 stuff, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Just to keep you engaged. 
So Michael will be taking over the reins for a couple of weeks, giving me a break from editing and... No, you're not doing Justice League and that Yeah, I'll do those two. You can do the other two. Okay, okay. All right. So let us know what you thought of it. It would be much appreciated via email. Uh, we're on Facebook. Hey, kids is the first name. Comics is the surname. And over at Forum for Geeks, we have a forum. Please do join in. Do you have anything final to say about Spider-Man other than he is the most awesomest, awesomest character ever? Excellent. Good. (laughs) All right. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Spider-Man, Spider-Man Does whatever a spider can Spins a web any size Catches thieves just like flies Look out! Here comes a Spider-Man Is he strong? Listen, but He's got radioactive blood Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead Hey there! Here goes a Spider-Man In the chill of night At the scene of the crime Like a streak of light He arrives just in time Spider-Man, Spider-Man Friendly neighborhood Spider-Man Wealth and fame he's ignored Action is his reward Look out, there goes a Spider-Man Watch out, Mr. Spider-Man Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, and all opinions expressed by Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money for this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the second name. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks, all one word, .com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. You'll find the Spider-Man. Wow.